You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, but he's no longer the head of the Conservative Party. It's a strange British anomaly uh, that we're talking about here. I want to discuss what's gone on over the last few weeks because I found it both fascinating and distasteful. And I'm talking to a man who shares my sentiments towards the aforementioned Boris Johnson. His name is Chris Gilmore. He's talking to me from the far north of Scotland. Uh, He's an investment analyst. Chris, it's fair to say that neither of us have ever liked Boris Johnson. Is that correct? Not strictly true. I'd say about 10, 12 years ago when he was mayor of London, I was suckered into his whole um, bit about, you know, his kind of jolly persona. I didn't know what, what he'd been getting up to. I, I didn't really know the background to Johnson. Hmm. Um, but, you know, over the past few years, as he's been um, foreign secretary and then prime minister, and it's become clearer, you know, people have been delving into his rather very murky past and, you know, bringing up what, what he's really all about. Um, you, you see a man of absolutely no principles whatsoever, Nothing at all, nothing to fall back on. Um, and he's just he's just out for the main chance. In other words, he's it, it's become clear to me in, in recent years that he couldn't care less about anyone or anything um, of the country. He, he just cares about himself. That sounds familiar, he's a, doesn't he's it? He's a horrible, uh, horrible the, self-promoter. He's a narcissist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I said, it, it sounds familiar. Uh, there was an American person who's recently left office who had exactly yes, the same traits yes. and characteristics. And, yes. um, okay, he's not quite as bad as the person which whose name I won't mention, but he really is cut from the same cloth. Now, you talk about him being mayor of London. Now, when I was living in and broadcasting from Cape Town, He came over as mayor of London as part of a trade delegation to promote trade between South Africa and the United Kingdom. And I organised, it took me a long time to get through all the layers of administration and bureaucracy and everything, and I organised an interview with him. And it was cancelled with about half an hour to go, which put me out a little bit. And I thought, well, okay, I understand you're a very busy person, but half an hour to go, I didn't like it. So immediately my hackles were up. And then I heard a story about six months ago from a chap, uh, Chris, and so indulge me on this one. He was a chap that uh, was around about the same age as me, maybe a couple of um, years younger, and we had the same sort of educational background. In other words, we both went, to, we came, both came from modest backgrounds. We both went to grammar school. We both got three A levels. He took a different path to me. I took two years off and then went to University College London to do my degree. He, on the other hand, was snapped up by a merchant bank in the city of London and never went to university and has done extremely well for himself since then. And he said that a mate of his went up to Oxford to study and so he visited him and they were sitting there on the banks of a river with a couple of his friends' mates who were were studying at Oxford and they they put a rug on the grass and they were next to a river and it was all very jolly and there was two or three bottles of wine involved And they sat there. And then a group of chaps came along, also uh, students from Oxford. And one of them had a shock of blonde blonde hair. (laughs) And they were quite boisterous uh, 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 fellows. And these, the chap said to my friend, he said, that's Boris Johnson. He's quite well known around here. He's a colourful character. And they were staring at them. And Boris Johnson said the following, and I'll do the accent. And I don't apologise for how bad it is. Oh, look, there's some poor people. And 
My friend was bristling when I mentioned uh, Boris Johnson to him. He says he can never, he will never ever forget that, and he had to be restrained from going up and punching him on the nose. Thank goodness he didn't. But anyway, if you look at that thing that I sent you yesterday, that uh, that, that animation, donkeys, yeah, yes. uh, led by donkeys, yes, where he constantly refers to people that are not of his class or his economic mm. status as plebs. That really ties in with that, and I didn't realise the extent to his bad behaviour in his upbringing, and I find it really, really offensive. Yes. Now, look, you, you've hit the nail on the head, uh, Lindsay. He's, um, he might consider himself as upper class, and he, he, he's, he's got some sort of um, affiliation to George III and all this kind of nonsense. Hmm. But in fact, he's actually got no class at all. He is, he's dirty, he's a slob, he is, um, he's got the sense of entitlement that comes with having gone to Eton. Mm. And I'll say it again, having gone to Eton. Mm. Now, it, it, it probably applies in equal measure to, to many other English public schools like Winchester and Westminster and a whole bunch and Harrow and all of these things. Um, this, this sense of entitlement. And it's an anachronism in this kind of day and age that uh, this kind of, it really still exists. But it is there and it's still embedded firmly into this, this part of the English psyche. And I, I, I do think that it's um, Johnson has he, he he hasn't just killed off his own future career, because I think he probably has. But I think he's I think he's done massive damage to the Conservative Party, at least the Conservative Party, the kind of yahoos typified by him, by uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Rees-Mogg, yes. And you know, this kind of nonsense, this entitlement. And Rishi Sunak, you know, he went to, 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 to Winchester. And, I mean, really, it's, it's about time that people woke up in, 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 in Britain and realized that's not what the real world's about. That might have been what it was about in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, you know, but not anymore. So, yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that, uh, to hear the stories like this. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I'll give you the analogy of the English cricket team. They played 17 test matches and only won one. And then they said, right, that's enough. Joe Root, you're not the captain anymore. He sort of resigned, uh, just like Boris Johnson has sort of resigned. He stayed in the team and he's done very well. But anyway, they uh, gave themselves a new captain in the form of Ben Stokes and a new manager in the form of Brendan McCullum. And they've won four tests in a row because they've done things completely differently. They're the same team, they're an England team, but they've done it differently. I think there's a great opportunity right. for the Conservative Party to do things completely differently and therefore win back the electorate. Because if there was a general election tomorrow, they'd lose hand over fist. They'd be obliterated. Yes. yes. And rightly so. Yeah. Look, the, the Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher was a very different type. And I know she was a very divisive figure. However, she was very different in the sense that Thatcher uh, typified hard work. You know, she rolled her sleeves up, metaphorically speaking, just got on with the job. And she was disliked by so many other people. She didn't care. It didn't matter. But I think, you know, the, the, the Tory party in those days uh, had more to do with grassroots, you know, bringing yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, and it, n n not so much to do with Eton and Winchester and Westminster and stuff like that, like this mob is. Um, so I, I think the Tory party, as you rightly say, have got a golden opportunity, but they're, they're going to have to clean out the audience stables, um, you know, from top to bottom. Um, 
And, and you know, Johnson also surrounded himself with a bunch of incompetence. It, we've mentioned Rhys Mogg. You couldn't get much more incompetent than that. Um, <laughs> I agree. Uh, he, I mean, really, a stupid long streak of misery. Really, what a joke. I, I refer to him as Jackboot Reich Smug because he is just so smug. And um, people like that, you know, they're, they're just utterly anachronistic. And they, they don't actually add up to very much at all. So, you know, you change it. You're right. But they've only got two years in which to do it, two and, two and a bit years. I'm not so sure they can do that. Well, we'll see. But I do think there's an opportunity here. But uh, when I look at people like, who's the, who's the blonde woman who, who is, is so fawning? She fawns upon uh, Boris Johnson. What's her Nadine name? Nadine Dorries. That's it. I find her almost as offensive as Jacob Rees-Mogg. She is such a sycophant. <laughs> I can't bear the woman. Yes. Let's get some young yes. guns in there. If you're a conservative person, I'm not. I'm, I'm apolitical. Um, I don't know what you are, but I will ask you, um, would you support uh, another independence vote for Scotland? Oh, totally. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, isn't it interesting? That's one of the last things he did before going and actually resigning. He said no to Nicholas Sturgeon. Well, you know, now, now we're getting into dangerous territory. No, don't but, worry. You know, no one's one, listening. One, one, one of, the, one of the, 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 the daftest things you can do as a kind of, how can I put it, as a poncy Englishman, no, no offence, Lindsay. No, no, you know, no, none taken. About, don't worry. We're talking about Boris Johnson. Here. I know my fellow countrymen to, can be horribly poncy and I'm ashamed of them sometimes. Yeah. But anyway, go on. It, is, is to come out with, with, with stuff like this, you know, with, with the accent, and you did it very well uh, just now. Mm. Um, because the, the Scots are a fairly, fairly recalcitrant bunch, as I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> and they, they, they don't like being told stuff like this. And um, I think Sturgeon's playing this very, very cleverly. Look, I don't think she had a snowball's chance in hell of ever getting this, um, this Indy Ref 2 through anyway. But th this will just add fuel to the fire. And... Um, who knows what's going to happen in 2024 when you have the election? Look, the Tories, I think, will lose their 80-seat majority quite convincingly. But will Labour come through with, with, with a majority? I'm not so sure they will. You might just find that the Lib Dems and or the SNP find themselves in the position of kingmaker. I, I can't support Ed Davey. I'm, I'm sorry. And Sakir Starmer doesn't have a personality. Um, I do think that if Labour had someone really, really strong and really charismatic, it doesn't, yeah, this whole, um, the, the cult of the leader, the charismatic leader has passed us all by, I think. I mean, Trump and Johnson have destroyed it, I, I think. But on the other hand, yeah. you've got to have yeah. some sort of spark. Ed Davey and Keir Starmer don't have it. There's got to be someone coming through, yeah. a young gun who surrounds him or herself with... You know, competent people, because you don't lead a country on your own. You, you put the best people that you have at your disposal in charge. But I just can't. If I had to go out and vote, I'd probably spoil my vote. I just can't be bothered with any yeah. of them. Look, I, I think Labour do have a guy in the in the form of Andy Burnham, you know, the, the mayor of Manchester. Yeah. Um, who is probably their best bet. He's very charismatic, but at the same time, he's very working class, gets his sleeves rolled up, he just gets the job done. He's been pretty effective as the mayor of Manchester, and I think he, he quite fancied the job. Look, I, I like Starmer, but I think he's just too incredibly boring. Oh, yeah. Um, he should have had a field day with Johnson over the past few weeks and months, but he didn't. And it was only in, in PMQs the other day that he really 
took the gloves off and <laughs> he, was he said a couple of nice things the charge of the lightweight lightweight brigade that was quite a good line i hope yeah. somebody wrote it yeah. for him but uh, on the other hand yes he hasn't he hasn't stuck the knife in and twisted it that's what he hasn't done i just want to read you something uh, that um, was sent to me and it was written on the 10th of may 2010 at 6 23 a.m by one boris johnson he says the following the whole thing is unbelievable. As I write these words, Gordon Brown, mm, one of your countrymen, yes. is still holed up in Downing Street. He is like some <laughs> illegal settler in the Sinai Desert, lashing himself to the radiator, or like David Brent haunting the office in that excruciating episode when he refuses to acknowledge that he has been sacked. Isn't there someone, he says, the Queen's private secretary, the nice policeman on the door of number 10, whose job it is to tell him that the game is up. I mean, how ironic is that, given what's happened in the yep, last few weeks and exactly. months? Quite extraordinary. He's a hypocrite. Yes. He's he. Oh, uh, he's self-serving. Yes. Simple as that. Totally. Totally. I mean, you know, you only have to go back to the the days of the leading up to the the, the vote in 2016. You know, before he became a, a Brexiter, he was um, he was very much a staunch um, Remain camp. So the man has absolutely no principles whatsoever, none at all. And um, that, I think, is, has, been, has come out loud and clear. Um, so he, he just he changes with the wind. And that is not what you need in a, a, a leader. You need somebody who's going to you know, lead from the front and he's going to carry on regardless. He thought of himself as being a Churchillian-type character. Well, I mean, please, what Hello. an insult to the, the memory of Churchill. I mean, what a joke. It was not even, not even close. Let's talk about the economy now, because otherwise I'll get too upset about um, attacking <laughs> Boris Johnson, and that would be inappropriate. The British pound against the US dollar has been a better performer than most other currencies against the US dollar. It's still only just below uh, 120. Currently, as we speak, it's 119.65, whereas the RAND, for example, has gone to... Fresh, I think it's a multi-year low actually of 1693. Um, so the pound is still quite stoic in the in the in the face of this dollar onslaught. What do you think about the economy? Because the economy is going to be paralysed for for two or three months, or certainly there will be political decision-making paralysis for the UK economy, which isn't great. No, you're right. Um, there will be that, that the element of paralysis, but I think more fundamentally, Lindsay, there are, are deeper problems. Um, notably, the, the self-inflicted damage caused by Brexit. Now, paramount amongst them um, is the, the inability to source staff. Um, I remember when I was at ABSA, I used to get these guys from, from Barclays coming and uh, giving us economic presentations mm. and talking about the wonderfully flexible British labour force. And in those days, it was wonderfully flexible, mainly because you had Europeans from Eastern Europe. Uh, they were the flexible part of it. But now they've all gone home. They've, um, they're no longer feeling welcome in, in Britain. And as a result, you've got a huge number of, um, of vacancies that just cannot be filled. You know, you look at British Airways, for example, um, EasyJet, Ryanair, they, they, they cannot, they're having to cull flights because they cannot get staff to do the most basic of things. People who got laid off in the pandemic, now they thought they'd come and they just rehire them. Nope. A lot of those people have literally gone, they've left. So there is a, a major problem. Hiring them is going to be inflationary. 
Uh, we know that that's, that's happened already. But physically just getting hold of them, we saw the truck drivers a, a year or so ago. That hasn't gone away. The massive red tape and bureaucracy that uh, is entailed now in trying to do anything that involves the European Union. And it's, as I say, it's, it's so unnecessary. It's so self-inflicted. So that, that's going to be problematic, I think. The Brexit story, sorry, before you go on, I have to, it suddenly popped into my mind. The Brexit story, if you take a tiny, tiny, miserable little example, which is a personal one of my own, I stupidly ordered an item of clothing from the United Kingdom about a month ago. And I suddenly thought, oh, wait a second, what have I just done? I've ordered something from the UK and things have changed because of Brexit. Anyway, it was, it was, it, it was a, about 20 quid or something. And I thought, oh, gosh. And then I got a note from the Dutch, uh, Dutch post office through the door. Uh, they said, OK, here's the barcode. You've got to pay €9.57 import duty on this thing. Whereas before, it, would, it wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Um, I, I would have had my uh, parcel within two or three days of being shipped from the UK and everything would have been fine. Three weeks later, because it had to go through customs and because I had to pay these duties, it arrived. So it, it's, it was about 30, probably 35, 40% of the cost of the, of the good, the, 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 the item that I bought. And I thought, if you multiply this to, to truck drivers, importers, exporters and everything else, it, it must is. be yeah. chaos out there, Chris. Mm. Yeah. No, no, it's absolutely hideous. Um, and again, you know, we would talk about Johnson getting getting Brexit done. Well, yes, but at what at what cost? You have that um, that chappy, the EU negotiator, a fellow called Michel Barnier, mm. and he was grinning, grinning all the way to the bank, particularly with re- regard to the the deal that the Europeans got. In, in regard to Brexit, on fisheries. It's terrible. It's, it's shocking. It really is for the British fishermen. English, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, doesn't matter. They've all got a bad deal. Mm. That's why I say there is so much that comes out of Brexit, and in their haste, they just had to get out. They had to get out. I don't know if you were ever able to watch a thing called GB News in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, this is, um, I can probably get it uh, because I've got uh, something called a VPN. So, yeah, but anyway, go on. Yes, you, you would, yes. I mean, you, you get Nigel Farage on there. He's one of the presenters. And uh, I have to say, Farage is a fantastically good presenter. No, he's, he's a great presenter. Yeah, but, but he was pro-Brexit, so he's not fantastic in any way. But anyway, go on. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Not, not at all. And, uh, you know, you listen to him. Uh, I was listening to him last night on, on um, Johnson going, and he was scathing about Johnson, but not not from the kind of angle that we're coming from. Um, but he, he reckoned that uh, Johnson was too soft. <laughs> I mean, really. So if, if you look at um, you look at what's happened, things have changed in Britain. The the, the country has has gone through a, a massive sea change. We, we've mentioned the kind of nonsensical, anachronistic nonsense that um, is taking place uh, in, in government, and that's got, got, got to change. We talked about Brexit. Um, it, it should be sitting pretty. There, sh- there should be a lot of opportunities. Um, but in fact, not, not really. The, the British work person, didn't say the work man, or mm. the work woman, the work person, yes. um, doesn't have the same degree of um, attention to detail as his European counterparts. So, you know, it's, it's, you try and get a job done in, in, in Britain. 
it takes forever. It's, it's expensive exercise, and, and that isn't going to change. So I think, putting it all together, there are a whole host of negatives about the British economy that aren't going away anytime soon. Okay, that's a cheerful thing. Let's, um, let's leave the, um, the UK economy, the British economy now, and have a look at the, the global picture, which is horrible as well. We've had a, a, a fairly decent sell-off in risk assets, notably equities, you know, NASDAQ, S&P, uh, Dow Jones, FTSE, and all the other associated indices. Commodities, however, have come down sharply, but at the same time, inflation is, is a nagging problem for reserve mm. banks. And it does look as though that the US um, Federal Reserve uh, at the July meeting will raise by a minimum of 50 basis points, maybe 75 basis points, even though yeah. the price of yeah. gas, as they call it in the States, at the pumps is coming down, but it is going up. And people are suddenly coming to realise that after so many, so many years of bond, bond prices being high and, and yields being incredibly low, that suddenly that situation has changed. And there's a great unwind going on, unwind of sentiment, unwind of uh, portfolios. How do you see it playing out from here, Chris? I think most players in the US and, and around the world are taking far too optimistic a view on what is going to happen with interest rates. In other words, I believe that they think that um, by some miracle, you're going to find interest rates uh, not having to go much beyond about 3.5% in total, and that somehow <laughs> that's going to contain inflation. It's nothing of the kind. Inflation, as you rightly say, is coming off. I think it's, it's coming down from, off from the highs of 8.6% year on year that was printed in the US uh, back in May. Mm. Um, However, in the UK, you know, it's not. Uh, it's, it's probably going to hit 11% before it turns. If you look at many countries in, uh, in Europe, I mean, I'm talking the Baltic states here, they're into 20% and 20% and plus. Many parts of Europe are in, into, well into, into double digits. Um, so it's, it's very, very difficult. Inflation, uh, and you lived through it in the 1970s. Once inflation takes hold, getting rid of it, again, is incredibly difficult. Now, Paul Volcker did it very effectively in the early 1980s in the, in the US, uh, but that was by taking a sledgehammer approach. Uh, he put interest rates up to twice the level of, um, of, of inflation, and he crushed inflation. Took him a couple of years, but he, he, he achieved it, and he stayed, it stayed like that for quite a few decades. Now, you've got a much more converged world. Can you, do, you can't really do that type of thing. The, the, the global financial uh, situation is far more fragile than it was then. As I say, it's far more interconnected today. And uh, things that you do in the US or wherever have got ripple effects all around the world. So I think Powell and his mates are probably going to be a bit too timid. Um, they're going to listen to what the market uh, people say. They're going to say, well, uh, let's... Let's get back to normal after, after six months uh, to, to eight months. Yeah, we, we've got to get back and uh, up and running. That isn't going to cure inflation. So I think the, the, what will probably happen is they'll get a bit of a fright um, and then they're going to start putting rates up properly. Maybe not to the levels that Falker would have done it because I, I think 
that is is probably just it's, it's not tenable in this day and age. You talked about However, convergence. Do you think that the the rates and the inflation will converge? In other words, the eight point six percent, which you referenced in the United Kingdom, which was the last consumer price inflation. Sorry, United States. The consumer price inflation print was eight point six percent year on year growth in a basket of goods. Do you think it might come down towards four and a half five percent over the next six months to a year, and at the same time, interest rates will come up? to meet inflation and therefore we'll have equilibrium is that a possibility that yeah that's what that's what these guys are hoping now i don't know if that can happen uh, it's a possibility i mean it's not something that can be completely discounted but bear in mind the the factors that caused this inflation in the first place supply chain disruptions that hasn't gone away um uh, the war in ukraine is going to be a a, a long-lasting thing and uh, tied into that, uh, you're, going to, you're going to have the, the Europeans struggling to try and get um, their, their, their energy supplies out of the Russians. So, you know, I think energy, energy prices are going to still remain relatively high. Look, I think semiconductors are probably going to start, the prices of them and the availability will start coming down. So that's why I say there are one or two bright spots um, on the horizon. But to your point, can you get this equilibrium? Yes, you can. It is possible. And that's why that's where the optimism um, lies in, in markets. If you can't get that, then you're going to, they're, they're going to have to rethink, they're going to have to reset, and they're going to have to put rates up significantly higher to crush inflation. Otherwise, you're going to have um, inflation at 6, 7, 8, 9% for the foreseeable future. And at that kind of level, you know, you, you are, you're, you're asking for major, major trouble. You know, I read in The Economist a couple of weeks ago, The Economist magazine, yes. they've constructed a model that looks at food inflation and correlates it with social unrest around the world. And they say there's a very, very good correlation between the two. Um, so as food inflation stays high, uh, social unrest uh, also stays very high. You know, if you look at um, Egypt, the biggest importer of wheat of any country in the world. So it was not just a coincidence that you had the, the Arab Spring in 2011. You know, um, food, food, food price uh, inflation was, was, was partly to do with that as well. So if, if food inflation can't be brought under control, there is a, a serious um, prospect of major um, uh, problems uh, in, in emerging countries around the world, particularly. So there are so many... Um, unintended consequences, Lindsay. It's not just in the US. Um, it's, it's all around the world. Yes, it is. And I must admit, uh, I envy you being in the far north of Scotland, as you put it. You're probably going to go now down to some beautiful, ancient Scottish uh, pub, have a, have a glass of malt whiskey, and then later on have a supper of uh, Scottish langoustines and, and whatever else you, you have. I mean, this is my stylized <laughs> vision wish. of what you're up to at the moment, Chris. <laughs> Tell me the truth. I wish. <laughs> All right. But anyway, thank you so much for your analysis. Chris Gilmore is an independent investment analyst. And as I say, he was talking to me from the far north of Scotland. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position 
or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.